0: episode of The Bedlam Book Club. I'm your host, Holly. Joining me as a co-host today is Maya. Hello. This is a non-profit, self-organized, amateur podcast exploring the history of madness and the way that history continues to influence our lived realities. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. Our aim is to foster awareness and solidarity through the existence of a shared past. This episode contains mentions of mind control, compulsion, substance use, suicidality, and domestic violence. Who is your favorite Greek god?
1: So I have an old and embarrassing long-standing favorite, which is Athena. Mm. Um, I was a bookish child, which I know is one of the great shocks of this podcast. Just the idea of a goddess of wisdom, I think, you know, maybe in the 90s girl power framework that I was operating in, kind of like struck me as pretty badass. Even in the present, I also appreciate that Athena's connection to craft as part of her wheelhouse, let's say, um, that she was a goddess of wisdom, but also was martial, which is not what I'm into, but that's interesting in and of itself. And she has this connection to weaving. And that's just a kind of interesting combination to my mind. I have a different framing on her behavior and how she interacts with humans now. So I think I would cast around differently for a favorite. And I think as an adult, I'm like, I'm not invested in divine power. Kill all gods. (laughs) But as a kid, all about Athena, baby.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't know if I had a favorite as a kid. I think probably Poseidon, if anybody. But I also just like, I love the ocean.
1: Mm -hmm. A natural allegiance.
0: A natural allegiance to the ocean. Um, I think now knowing more about Poseidon, I'm, I'm a little bit more wary of him. Mm -hmm. But I still think that like he probably would be my second favorite god. My first favorite god we're going to talk a lot about today and so I'm not going to get too much into it, but Dionysus has to be my favorite god. But not because of necessarily the drunken revelry, but his connections to madness and how he uses that I think is really interesting. So we also need to talk about the difference between Mycenaean gods and classical Greek gods. We talked about in um, the last episode we did on the Greeks a little bit about the Mycenaeans, that they were the predecessors to the classical Greeks. Classical Greece being kind of what you think of when you think of ancient Greeks with the big tall pillars and Athena and Dionysus and Hephaestus and all, you know, the, know, the, the Greek gods. And one of the main differences that you would see in the Mycenaean pantheon is the fact that Hera is no longer playing second fiddle to Zeus. Hera actually, I would say, has a lot in common with Ishtar. She's associated with politics. She's associated with battle. She's associated with death. She's a much more powerful deity, um, as is Demeter and someone named Kor, who we would call Persephone. And in, mm. in this pantheon, Demeter and Persephone and Poseidon are a trio of head gods. Zeus is not, I, I, I don't even think Zeus is in the picture at this point.
1: Not even a twinkle in Kronos' eye. <laughs> <laughs> and just for some context, Mycenaean Greece spanned from about 1750 to 1050 BCE. Just so you have some kind of context in time of where we are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Part of the reason that we bring this up is, one, this is interesting, or I think it is, this kind of comparative pantheon, but because Greece became increasingly patriarchal after the Dark Ages, after the Bronze Age collapse.
1: So you're saying that there might have been a deliberate recasting of these important goddesses to kind of centralized male power
0: yeah and if you look at the example of these three women Hera goes from being very powerful and influential to kind of the butt of everyone's joke when her husband cheats on her
1: yeah she's sort of this bitter vengeful impotent force
0: yes and we'll see that a little bit later today when we get to the Hercules myth
1: she's very literally disempowered
0: Yeah, very disempowered. And then we have Demeter, who is very powerful and has some stories where she shows some real power, but Persephone winds up getting kidnapped.
1: Right, and one of the examples we have of Demeter showing her power is basically her protest against her daughter's kidnapping in this prolonged winter that she creates, and that's the bargaining chip that she uses to get Persephone back for part of the year.
0: Yeah, so we wind up with this really kind of unfortunate mixed bag going on here. Like, you know, Demeter and Persephone, again, used to be head gods in charge of the Pantheon, or at least, you know, in in the sense that we're talking about it right now in a modern sense. And then all of a sudden, Zeus, the new god in town, gives his brother Hades, who's also a new god at this point, permission to kidnap the ancient terrifying goddess of death persephone whose
1: name we do not speak
0: yeah you wouldn't say core you wouldn't get her her attention why would you want her attention she's a goddess of death she's going to come and get you i
1: just want to point out that we've done this two episodes in a row where there's entities that you just shouldn't say out loud and we're just like blah blah blah
0: In a a podcast so focused on madness and disability, why do we care about patriarchy?
1: Great question that you're asking yourself.
0: With patriarchy, and I would even argue statism more generally, the kind of consolidation and centralization of political power, comes ableism.
1: Say more about that.
0: So I'll I'll speak more to patriarchy, but patriarchy is kind of inherently ableist. Mm Mm-hmm. there's a kind of machismo and a kind of a warrior culture that comes with it, or at least a culture of violence.
1: Well, it seems like in an effort to set men apart from women, in order to have patriarchy, you have to have gender differences. Right. And the emphasis of those gender differences, at least partially, often becomes physicality. And so I think that helps me create that link.
0: Because if you're so focused on the division between men and women, well, first off, there isn't as much of a division as you would think. Men and women are socially constructed. They're not biologically constructed. There's a lot of overlap between all different kinds of people and um, ability. But patriarchy really wants to have a really sharply divided line because it wants to dominate everything on the other side of the line, which is everything that's feminine and everything that's non-binary. Or everything that's ambiguous
1: right and if you're trying to lift up one supposedly one gender at the expense of the other and the emphasis becomes on physicality on warrior status um, these things get bundled together and so one of the things we're looking at here is in the formation of patriarchy as it exists today what echoes or origins of that do we see in this greek history that we're looking at that of course then became very influential in the societies we live in now.
0: So in other words, to sum this whole thing up, all of these stories have agendas.
1: And some of them are deliberately didactic. Others are deliberately meant to explain the world as it is. Some of them, or some of the stories that we're telling, derive from things like theater, um, which may have had entertainment purposes as well as moralizing purposes or state-building purposes. So we're seeing a mix of, of aims and mediums.
0: Yeah, so we're going to try to talk about those as we go along.
1: So what does madness look like in Greek myth?
0: Well, there's an expression that whom the gods wish to destroy, they would first make mad. And that's kind of a a proverb, if you will, of uh, a guide into understanding Greek theater and Greek storytelling.
1: Let's spell it out really clear. Can you unpack that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so if the gods decide that somebody is on their shit list, they could just smite that person and just obliterate them off the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. They could do that. But instead, what they repeatedly do throughout all of these tragedies, throughout all of these myths, throughout all of these stories that we have and have good records of, too many examples to count, the gods instead choose to make the person... Go mad in whatever version that takes place in you know either like maybe you kill a family member maybe you do something drastic to yourself maybe you um have some sort of transformation
1: or you employ a form of logic that leads to your own end a form of folly
0: so that happens to you and then once you've experienced madness for long enough then they get rid of you. It's quite insidious.
1: So, there's this idea then, we could say that madness is a punishment. That's the framework we're using or working with here. Yeah,
0: in Greek mythology, that's absolutely the message.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, again, not to put too fine a to point on it, but I think that says a lot about the sort of conception of madness that we're kind of working through. Um, that we're not seeing a kind of social or communitarian or even kind of necessarily inspired madness or creative madness. We're, we're seeing a lot of punitive madness.
0: Absolutely. And so when you think about people who were born with madness who were, just needed support or they, you know, they developed madness over the course of their lives. Again, people just needing support in a safe place to exist in this would have been likely seen as punitive.
1: And myths are a way of understanding or explaining what's otherwise unexplainable. And I think in the classical madness episode, we talked a little bit about theories of madness. Where does madness come from? What causes it? And this is a kind of psychic theory of madness. It comes from without. It comes from external circumstances and it affects the mind.
0: Yeah, and the Greeks were also really big on this idea that madness was a sort of emotional extreme brought about by either internal imbalance or, like you said, external coming from the gods. So depending on how religious you were, you would have seen it differently. You would have either thought it was the humors or you would have thought that it was, you know, Dionysus or Hera or somebody.
1: Do you think that in these stories, the fact that madness although punitive has divine origin, creates a link between madness and divinity. Is that a link worth making when we think about this?
0: I think so. There are several different kinds of madness, kind of flavors of madness that you see in Greek mythology. And we don't talk about this really in a lot in this episode, but like there's the madness that Apollo would give somebody and that would be like madness to the Oracle of Delphi. And so that is still extremely politically charged but she's not being punished per se she's being given the power of foresight and it's considered to be a form of madness from the god apollo
1: so it's often punitive but not always
0: yeah there are exceptions and it kind of depends on which god gets involved
1: right and each god has their own character so that kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah like Aphrodite is another one that's considered to be able to influence people in this you know emotional extreme. She utilizes this emotional extreme either for good in terms of just like you know getting people set up together because she ships it or for evil because she wants to uh, get someone to fall in love with themselves or get fall in love with something that they shouldn't be in love with
1: i was just really distracted being like we missed a chance to make a helen of troy Troy joke about shipping it
0: oh yeah the The shipping
1: that launched a thousand ships
0: (laughs) (laughs) that was paris (laughs) aphrodite just wanted that golden apple like
1: i mean she she uh protects her boy though
0: she does protect her boy. She does
1: wrap him in a vapor and removes him from battle at one point. He's she just does. I forgot cute. about
0: that. I forgot about that.
1: She's shipping. That's
0: her OTP. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, I'm not explaining it. Um, <laughs> before we talk about madness and myth, we wanted to acknowledge the presence of disability in myth more broadly. Which leads us to our first story of Hephaestus.
1: One of the big 12.
0: Um, So most sources agree that Hephaestus is the son of Hera, but not necessarily the son of Zeus. In some versions of the story, Hephaestus is disabled from birth. In another version, he becomes disabled after Hera or Zeus throws him off Mount Olympus for varying reasons of varying levels of disturbingness. After he is thrown off the mountain, he is said to be raised by new, and I would argue better parents, <laughs> where he learns to be a craftsman. And it's really significant that it be, he becomes a craftsman, because at that time, disabled people were associated with trades and crafts. Yeah, this is where I'm making a guess. But it seems to me that if you need a mobility aid, or you have some kind of... um accommodation that you need
1: a visual disability for example
0: yeah making a craft might be a more accessible trade than like farming or fishing and it might be something that you could do in the polis or in the town square work on your crafts sell your crafts be around people have access to community support that makes sense to me but again i'm i'm guessing a little bit here but the thing that I would point out is that if that is the case and if that's why disabled people or people with you know different mobility aids and accommodation needs
1: and that's where that craft association comes from
0: yeah if that's where the craft association is why not be associated with oration kingship kingship um doing things you know other professions or other skills and abilities where you know that mobility piece isn't you know where that's fully accounted for and so what that tells me is that disabled people are still not being granted access to these spaces you know Hephaestus is not an orator no one's listening to him so now (laughs) we're getting into the madness it's, it's taking kind of, hold. It's taking hold. So
1: who's visiting us right now as we become mad, Holly?
0: One of four people. I've already gone over these a little bit, but I think it's worth um, touching on these again. Prophetic Frenzy is associated with the Oracle of Delphi and Dodona, and that is granted by Apollo.
1: So you become you enter a kind of altered state to be able to access information about the future that would otherwise be... Opaque to you.
0: Yes, exactly. And oftentimes, you know, these oracles are giving like partial information, and you know, it's 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 all very mysterious.
1: It's a real mixed bag when you try to tell the future.
0: It really, really is, especially in Greek myth. It can lead to some problems.
1: It can uh, backfire on you in a tragic way. Archetypally.
0: <laughs> Archetypally. <laughs> There are revelations and initiations which provide catharsis. Um, And so this is very ritualistic and associated with Dionysus. We're going to talk a lot about Dionysus. Um, There can also be poetic inspiration, which is from the muses. And I find this one really interesting um, because as we talked a little bit last season, certain disorders like um, schizophrenia in the 70s, Um, in the, uh, 1970s, uh, CE had to specify.
1: (laughs) Ah, yes. The 1970s CE, the time of disco.
0: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Um, schizophrenia was associated with like poets and with artists and was considered to be a, you know, a very inspirational artistic disorder to have.
1: Melancholia at different times, I think also had that association Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, there we we even in more modern times have this like association of like the tortured artist Mm -hmm. you know who's like clearly mentally unwell but they're producing all of this wonderful art and it's it's kind of a disgusting trope i think
1: yeah i think it's a meant to be a kind of benevolent framework but in itself is so biased that it creates greater challenges
0: yeah and so with the poetic inspiration of the muses. That's what that reminds me of. And so I don't Mm -hmm. know exactly if that's how the Greeks saw it, but as a modern viewer looking in, that's what it makes me think of.
1: It reminds me a little bit of Possession. We've talked about that in previous Mm -hmm. episodes about um, the Middle Ages and Christianity and kind of demonology and that idea of where madness comes from that your soul is essentially being taken over, your body is being taken over, possessed by malevolent forces. Um, That's not necessarily implied here, the idea of malevolence, but I think about a kind of possession of where do ideas come from, where are they generated from? Mm -hmm. And if you're being acted upon by the gods and sort of taken over, and that idea of being kind of surrendering to this greater force and kind of channeling, um, there's a kind of possession trope i feel like at play and that's the association i make and it also means i misspoke a little bit earlier talking about even though greek madness is often punitive that's clearly not necessarily a punitive example so there's more than one kind of madness being explored
0: um and then the last one that we already talked about was um basically love passion um sexual desire um and this coming from aphrodite and eros and at sometimes aphrodite using this against people
1: fascinating
0: um using it against them um, when she wanted to get back at somebody
1: it reminds me a little bit of a midsummer night's dream where titania falls in love with bottom on uh, mm. the weaver um, mm-hmm. who has his donkey ears at the time and she's kind of cursed with this desire this and in a kind of comedic played for comedy she's sort of overcome with desire and it's a it's deliberately a punishment
0: yeah i think that that would be a great example and i think aphrodite would probably be proud
1: yeah the idea of taking leave of your senses
0: i think we can just agree that aphrodite is probably the most petty of all the gods even hera i i love her i think she's great (laughs)
1: Being overcome with sexual desire so that you can't think straight is one of the most petty of all the curses Uh (laughs) from personal (laughs) experience.
0: (laughs) All right. So from here on out, we're going to be talking about specific gods and specific stories, and they're all going to be centered around madness. So first up, maybe one of the more central figures that we're going to be talking about is Lisa. Lisa.
1: And one of the more interesting finds that we made, I think, when doing this research.
0: Yeah, I found out by Lisa quite on accident. I was basically looking through a book that I already, I already had sources for the episode, but I just wanted to flip through this book just for kicks and giggles. Kicks and giggles? (laughs) (laughs) Do people not say that?
1: Um, Well, you just said it, so people do say it. It was very cute.
0: (laughs) So I'm reading through this book um, and, Kicking I'm, and, giggling. and I'm looking over one of the myths that um, we were going to talk about and um, basically found this entire other entity in this story that I wasn't prepared to find. And I had to do some like additional research and found out, lo and behold, whom the gods want to make mad. They don't necessarily do it themselves. They go to Lisa and they have Lisa do it. And Lisa is like this hitman.
1: A hitman of madness. Yeah, a
0: hitman of madness for the gods. And oftentimes in retellings, she just gets omitted, which I'm sure she loves because I I get the impression she likes the the subtlety of it all. So a little bit more about Lisa, and this is spelled L-Y-S-S-A in the anglicized version. Lisa is the daughter of Nyx, who is the goddess of night. Nyx is in turn the daughter of chaos, and I think that that's an important connection because in Greek thinking, chaos and order were part of that dualism. Chaos was the worst thing ever, order was what you wanted, order was the goal.
1: And in this kind of patriarchal conception, maybe to complicate the picture even further we have Olympian gods and those are the ones a lot of people have heard of, like the movie Hercules with Zeus and that kind of cast of characters. The progenitors of those gods are the Titans. And there's a sort of implied kind of primordial quality to them, greater darkness, less order, less modern, more confusing. Um, And Lisa is from that genealogy. And so it's Nyx.
0: Yeah. And so Nyx... And we'll just go into this very briefly, but Nyx basically has a lot of children and they all represent bad things. Pretty much. Pretty much. Almost uniformly represent bad things. Like she has two- Mercy's
1: thrown in there somehow. Yeah. But the rest of them are pretty scary.
0: Yeah. Like she has two daughters of madness. Um, And we're going to go over uh, both of them here. So Lisa is the goddess of frenzied madness and rabies.
1: And I think one of the terms for rabies actually has Lisa in the name, which is pretty interesting.
0: Very heavy metal. <laughs> Love it.
1: Holly's having a great time thinking of band names <laughs> in relation to this episode.
0: There's so many to be had. It's really great.
1: That's why this is an interdisciplinary podcast.
0: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa also in turn has her own assistants called the Manier. And Manier is romanized as mania. Just straight up the word mania. So if there was ever a confusion about her being connected to madness and mental illness and perceptions of it, it's right in the name.
1: Right in the name.
0: <laughs> she is a somewhat obscure character, kind of like we are talking about. She kind of gets omitted from these retellings of these stories. Um, but she's going to come up a couple times today. She has a sister named... Oizis? 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 O-I-Z-Y-S in the anglicized spelling. Um, She is also a daughter of Nyx, and she's associated with depression, grief, and misfortune. She is only ever present on, like, lists of gods and genealogies, but she doesn't have any stories of her own, so we don't know much more than that. We just know, basically, that she exists.
1: And there are different sources that give different lists of families um and lisa and Oisus don't don't necessarily come from those same sources but again we're piecing together with the fragments that we have and they are both descended from Nyx, and in, in that conception so it's this kind of the night the darkness is kind of giving rise to these challenging experiences for humans
0: and with that we're going to move on to a god that has loads of stories so we're going to start off with Dionysus again, the, like I said, this one, one of my favorites, um, and he's more than just the God of wine. He's also associated with vegetation, pleasure, festivity, and madness, which is kind of our focus. Um, in Mycenaean Greece, again, going way back to, um, before the classical period, he was far more serious and maybe even associated with death. It's kind of hard to tell. All versions of his origin story involve his being killed and dismembered before being reborn. He is able to afflict madness upon people. In fact, drinking wine was considered to be allowing Dionysus to possess you, allowing the madness in. He's the son of Zeus and one of his flings, Samel, um, but was raised in some stories by Persephone, who again associated with death in the underworld dionysus is considered by many scholars to be the foil of apollo so one of his stories um, is that as a young man dionysus is kidnapped by pirates and they tie him up and they're just going to do mean pirate stuff it's going to be bad he's kidnapped arg and so dionysus calmly responds to this by driving everybody on the ship mad he uses pan flute music to drive everybody insane.
1: That actually works on me pretty quickly. So we can understand how this happened. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's
0: uh, uh, it's apparently very discordant and very cacophonous to listen to. And that's enough to drive people mad. He turns the oars and masts into snakes and that takes care of the pirates.
1: It's just a snaky bad music time.
0: Uh Uh-huh, and so that's not behavior from the god of wine. Mm. That's from a god of darker topics than wine and vegetation.
1: Yeah, kind of the darker side of human nature, kind of primordial Mm -hmm. unease.
0: Yeah, so Dionysus is pretty heavy metal, and we're not even done yet. Um, We need to talk about the Maynads which are these roaming or uh, spontaneous bands of women devoted to Dionysus who will murder kings and overthrow governments.
1: So how historical is this? Like is this part of myth itself that the Maenads show up in the myths or are there is there a historical example of people following his cult?
0: As far as I could tell there's no like there are no armies of women running around dismembering people During this time, which is kind of of sad. Yeah, kind of a bummer. But in the Dionysian cults, there may have been groups of women dismembering animals as part of their Dionysian rituals. But we don't know.
1: This is why we study ancient history. The roving bands of women.
0: Mm -hmm. The Maynads were prone to kill people through a process known as Spragmos. Which is just meaning you just dismember somebody with your bare hands. Very heavy metal. Pretty gross. There was a king who banned the worship of Dionysus.
1: Big mistake.
0: Big mistake.
1: Classic error.
0: And so Dionysus sends Lisa to cause madness, not in the king who offended him, but in the king's wife. And some other women who were part of the court who working together tore his limbs off and beheaded him again pretty heavy metal it was thought that the main gnats were made super strong by the power of dionysus
1: which helps with all the dismembering all the spragmos going on
0: yeah because i mean i've never dismembered somebody with my bare hands but it looks hard
1: i can barely bring my groceries in from the car
0: (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about the cult of Dionysus. The cults were thought to be, and again, this is really, really loose information because it's a cult. They kept their information really secret on purpose.
1: Yeah, cults are known for their excellent and transparent record keeping. Right. That's a joke. They're not known for that. Psych. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So, the cults of Dionysus, cults were largely comprised of women, foreigners, and lower class, and just general misfits. This was perhaps a place of catharsis for people experiencing oppression. Because remember, patriarchy is becoming more and more prominent during this time period. Or at least in the time period leading up to this. Rumors of violent rituals, though largely unsubstantiated, um, revolved around the spragmos of bulls of leopards
1: and how was how much of this was just slander is kind of part of the question of like if this was a group of people challenging the power structure then you have to really look with suspicion on whatever narratives exist about them that came from that power structure
0: right and further to that point around the time of alexander the great dionysus was reclaimed as a victory god a party god for the wealthy and powerful Dionysus lost his madness and frenzy and became more focused on wine, becoming more closely resembling the god that we're familiar with today.
1: It's also worth noting that substance use and madness are often associated together, even in the modern day. So it feels like some of that link is still being drawn.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a whole can of worms. The story of what happens to Dionysus is really, really important, not only to our understanding of madness during the classical era and antiquity, but also because basically we have a movement that was for oppressed people, got co-opted by the rich and powerful. We've seen this before in the modern day.
1: So rather than trying to stamp out Dionysus or prevent worship of Dionysus it's a recasting of Dionysus an appropriation and a recasting so worth looking at how revolutionary ideas are integrated and what happens to them next
0: yeah because if you think about it like it's a huge insult to these to these cults of Dionysus where the whole point is catharsis in the face of state violence Mm. and state oppression and then in turn the state comes in and takes it
1: And associates it with a worshipful air around state violence itself.
0: Exactly.
1: You know, a monument that can stand as a warning to us.
0: All right. Last story for the day. Um, This is the story of Hercules. This one contains some kind of nasty domestic violence stuff in it. So if that's squeaky to you, um, feel free to skip this part.
1: I mean, we've all seen the movie Hercules, so...
0: Yeah, this is what happens once that movie's over. (laughs) Once the credits roll.
1: (laughs) Once the credits
0: roll, fast forward a couple years. This is is what happens. And
1: that's why there's no Hercules too. Actually, I don't know that. There might be. Yeah. I'm not up on it.
0: I don't know. So Hercules is also a son of Zeus, like Dionysus. He's another bastard. He was named Hercules to appease Hera. And actually, I've been mispronouncing his name. His name in the in the Roman is Hercules. His name is in the Greek is Heracles. And so you can hear the name Hera in there. Heracles.
1: He's so much better known as Hercules that it probably makes sense to not just confuse everyone by pronouncing it differently, even though we're talking about the Greeks.
0: Right. So he was named after Hera... To try to appease her so that she wouldn't exact vengeance on the child, which again, going back to Hera being this kind of just vengeful, spiteful, controlling individual um, who can't keep track of her husband and blah, blah, blah.
1: Embittered housewife.
0: Naming Hercules after Hera doesn't do the trick. When, once he's an adult and he has a family, Hera sends Lisa to make Hercules fall into a frenzy. Lisa is reluctant to do this at first, but eventually yields to the Queen of the Gods because... Hierarchy. Hierarchy. This frenzy that Lisa imparts onto Hercules causes him to kill his whole family. Seeing what he'd done, he initially contemplates suicide... But is later convinced to go to the Oracle of Delphi, which is associated with Apollo, which I think is interesting, to atone. Hercules was directed to serve King Eurystheus for 10 years. The king ultimately prescribed 12 labors that would absolve Hercules of what he'd done. It's worth noting that none of these labors that Hercules performs directly benefit his surviving extended family. Hmm. So, the family that he killed their family don't receive any benefit from these
1: so the atonement doesn't link back to people most affected, essentially
0: right. A lot of the people who actually benefit from these labors are other royalty.
1: There's a lot to unpack there. I don't know if we're gonna get into it, but it is really interesting. uh-huh and this is such a tragic story, like I think that it's the the specter and also. Part of the myth of madness, to use it kind of in common terms, not necessarily to refer to stories, but this idea of madness leading to regrettable violence—that the person themselves has no real power over, knowledge of, or control over.
0: Yeah, it's really really sad. Um, and we could probably look at this story in a few ways because this story actually confuses me in some in mm-hmm. some regards. Um, because on one hand, we could look at it like a Greek tragedy. Greeks loved their tragedies. They just liked things going wrong in a particularly sad way.
1: And it's a particular kind of storytelling structure, it's worth saying. So like in Greek theater, that's the, our ideas of tragedy come from the Greeks.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe the story is meant to be like a moral or is it just to shock us? Or even just an excuse to show off Hercules's power when he goes to solve the 12 labors.
1: Which is a pretty devastating origin story to then just exhibit his prowess, if that's the case.
0: Yeah, so basically, is this a purely narrative device? Um, We could also look at this story as an allegory. Like, is this story meant to reinforce the judicial power of kings? Hmm. You know, are kings supposed to come out of this looking good?
1: Or is it meant to reflect on the power of gods over mortal life? That divine intervention is always possible no matter how powerful you are. Mm -hmm. And that that can disrupt and break your reality at will
0: yeah um or is this story supposed to speak about domestic violence or you know some other kind of form of madness that in the greek's mind would result in violence
1: right does this raise a question of what do we do with someone in the community who commits a violent act within their family system then shows remorse how do we reintegrate them how do we offer accountability
0: right Honestly, to answer, like, these questions, we probably need, like, an actual Greek mythology scholar to go deeper into the story with us.
1: And understand the context better.
0: Yeah, but madness is clearly being used in one way or another to give us pause when examining Hercules' violence.
1: Because I think there's a part of this, too, where I don't think we're meant to understand Hercules as the responsible party. And the mediating factor there is his madness. And the madness itself is a punishment, to echo our earlier conversation. Him having to live with what he's done, that he wasn't in control over, is a lifelong punishment.
0: Yeah, so again, these are these are some of the reasons that this story in particular confuses me. So with all of that said, what are you still processing?
1: I think that I'm still processing these varied depictions of madness and trying to make sense of how we're supposed to understand them.
0: It's kind of a patchwork.
1: It is. We see four different types of madness in these stories. We see complicated depictions of madness. We see certain amounts of measures of empathy for people who are experiencing madness. We also see this kind of like divinity in being set apart that's being associated with madness, which isn't wholly negative. So all of that paints a really complicated picture.
0: Yeah, it really does. And I think based on what we know about madness and science and religion in Greek society throughout antiquity is that it was a mixed bag for them too. And that there was a lot of different things going on, a lot of different influences You know, like we have the Socratics and the pre-Socratics who have very different ideas about whether or not gods are involved in health and madness. And so that makes sense that that would kind of reflect itself in the myths that there was an imperfect understanding and an imperfect canon because everybody disagreed and different stories arose at different periods in time. Like Dionysus is... Very old, I think older than Apollo. And so it makes sense that these are different ideas of madness.
1: Right. So you see different influences being baked into the stories that are being told in ways that create a kind of divergence in accounts and in perspective of how madness functions, what it means, and what role it plays in people's lives. Along those lines, I think I'm also interested in just that range of ideas of madness being presented, especially in light of the fairy tales that we were talking about in our previous episode. Um, One of the things that we talked about is how difficult it was to find madness in those stories, which are much, maybe not much later. It's really hard to get dates on folkloric stories because these are associated with a people group and a culture. I think we have a better idea of their origins. But fairy tales were collected and recorded much later in our history, and we see a lot less madness in them. So even if there's really challenging elements to sit with, like the idea of madness as inherently punishing or inflicted upon people as a punishment, which is certainly not the lens that we want to employ, we also still see enough divergence that it acknowledges the role of madness in human life, which is harder to come by in that other folkloric tradition. Mm -hmm. So just the prevalence of madness, I think, feels validating in some way. And I know that this was part of your original research for this podcast project, and it kind of opened the door that essentially madness existed even in these ancient times.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was... Definitely one of the things that sparked my interest in the broader history of madness and where it came from, where it was going, all that business. So it's honestly just great to just reach these episodes. Um, Talking about myths and madness and fairy tales, I think it's great. Um, And for me, what I'm still processing is how heavy metal Dionysus is. I I know I said that earlier and I'm going to keep saying it, but there are some great band names in here there's some great band names, some great album names, some song inspirations.
1: So metal fans, take to Wikipedia.
0: <laughs> Look it up.
1: You're going to find some gems in there.
0: Yeah, a the whole thing based off of Lisa or the the Daughters of Nix in
1: general like Yeah, and I think also there's something satisfying to me, maybe satisfying is the wrong word, but viscerally satisfying in this dark imagery. Like mm-hmm this idea of kind of a panoply of divine beings that attend to the most terrifying aspects of human life lends them a weight that in some ways counters this idea that those experiences are inherently individual when they really are collective
0: i really like that
1: yeah you're not alone lisa's with you
0: (laughs) oh great (laughs) (laughs) The rabies lady is going to (laughs) help. Oh, fantastic. Um, What was your takeaway?
1: I think madness is old. Madness is weird. Stories are old and people are weird.
0: I agree with all of that. Um, And I want to say, I think my takeaway is actually something that you said just a little bit ago, which was the idea that... If we're dedicating this concept, this entire concept of madness or depression, grief, mania, frenzy, whatever it is, we're dedicating an entire God to this idea. It has to be a universal experience. Yeah. It Enough people have to have run into this idea that we made a God out of it.
1: Mm-hmm. And that there's this idea that it underpins human life and is kind of beyond... And part of our understanding in some ways.
0: I I love it. I really, really like that. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be writing on that one for a while.
1: Do you have a book recommendation?
0: I thought I would just recommend a book for fun. What? Just for for fun, if this book can be described as fun. <laughs> um, I'm recommending Circe by Madeline Miller. It's a piece of fiction. This is by the same author who wrote Song of Achilles. And it's just, um, it's really, I don't know, I I enjoyed it. There's a lot of good stuff in it.
1: I think it's also a reimagining of these myths and stories. And I think that's maybe in line with what we were trying to do in this episode today is kind of consider what they mean to us and, and consider some of the implications of the structure of divinity. And I think the book does a really interesting job of extending the logic of what it means for humans and immortal beings to interact and the different frameworks that they interact in um and i think it's very human
0: yeah it's really beautiful i think it's a great description so all right i think we're going to cut it off there i'm holly i'm maya and this has been the bedlam book club this has been an episode of the bedlam book club this show was produced written and created by maya and holly intro and outro music was by coma studio check out our bibliography in the show notes Make sure to practice self-care and contact local resources if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health emergency. Take care of each other out there.